Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Two weeks ago, we considered Paul's opening salutation to the church in Corinth, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And then we read his thanksgiving. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul writes those words. He asserts the theological truthfulness of those statements, even though the church in Corinth is a sinful mess. Boasting in incest, visiting prostitutes, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, denying Jesus' bodily resurrection, taking believers to civil court. On one level, of course, it's not surprising For a church to have sin problems, after all, a church is a group of sinners. Saved and repenting sinners, yes, but we're still sinners. And if that's the case for a group of long-time Christians, imagine a church consisting entirely of baby Christians. Because that's what we have here. When Paul wrote this letter, the believers in Corinth had been Christians for no more than three years. They're all recent converts. They don't have generations of Christians in their culture. None of them grew up in a Christian home. So it isn't surprising that the early Corinthian church continued to share some of Corinth's worldly values regarding things like leaders and sex and a host of other issues. But quite frankly, uh, apart from what Paul writes about them in those opening verses, we'd probably just assume the Corinthian church is made up of rotten to the core, beyond the pale pseudo-Christians. But instead, how does the Apostle Paul address this church? To the church of God in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And that's because Paul looks at the church primarily as who they are in Christ before he looks at anything else that may be true of them, which is why he deliberately begins his epistle by thanking God for the grace of God the Corinthians have already received in Jesus Christ and for the gifts of grace that are going to sustain them to the end. In other words, Christians are holy. Christians are responsible to be holy. That was sermon number one. Verse 10 and sermon number two is the start of a new section. Paul moves now into the first of ten issues where the Corinthian church needs to change. I've listed these things in your handout. Dividing over church teachers, tolerating incest, bringing lawsuits against one another, excusing sexual immorality, having sex in marriage, staying single, getting divorced, and getting married, eating food offered to idols, wearing head coverings, abusing the Lord's Supper, desiring and using spiritual gifts, denying that God will resurrect believers. And the first issue addressed, dividing over church teachers, is a big, big unit. It's four chapters in length. In fact, Paul devotes more words to this issue than to any other in the book. More than desiring and using spiritual gifts. More than uh, eating food offered to idols. And because it's so big... My plan is to break up this unit into four or five sermons. Uh, Now, there's benefit to that. It means we're not 
flying over inspired scripture at 30,000 feet for four chapters. Uh, but the major drawback is that it's harder to remember that we're dealing with a single unit here. That Paul's addressing one main issue. Here, and hence, our sermon title today, Dividing Over Church Teachers, Part 1. But that also means I need to space out what I'm saying. I, I just can't shoot my bolt at the first mention of something Paul unpacks over the course of four chapters. So please note that, okay? I'm, I'm depending upon you to remember that. If, if I don't delve into the nitty-gritty of a theme today that occurs multiple times throughout the book, that's probably a deliberate choice on my part. Uh, I'm thinking of verse 17 today in particular. There's a lot there in that verse. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll look at everything Paul teaches, but we're going to do so gradually. All right? In due course. In the fullness of time. When the moment is ripe. Don't worry. But I want to take this sermon and its concluding application in a very specific direction. Verse 10 is a transition verse. Paul transitions from affirming the Corinthians in the grace of God they've already received and for the gifts of grace which will sustain them to the end. He transitions from that to confronting them. Confronting them about what? Unity. Church unity. There's division. There's quarreling in the church of God at Corinth. And it's this topic of unity and division in the church where I'm going to focus our attention this morning, not in the, in the theological abstract, but as it relates to COVID-19. COVID-19 and the lamentable, sinful things certain pastors have been saying about other churches, other pastors, fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who disagree with their approach on the matter of churches gathering during lockdowns and civil disobedience. You can't miss it. It's all over social media. Frankly, I'm appalled. And I know for a fact that members of New City have faced pressure from people outside our church family to question the faithfulness of the elders of this assembly regarding our approach to these matters. Not, not the wisdom or the prudence of our policies, our Christian faithfulness. And so this is a topic we need to address, loved ones. Just as last year, we needed to address the jurisdictional overlap of the church and the government. It's not a topic I relish, uh, but part of the role of a shepherd is to keep the wolves away from the flock. We can't allow, we can't allow this sort of divisive talk to infect our local assembly. It's insidious. It's like termites in the walls of a house, only this is the church of God. But we'll consider that at the end of our sermon today, once we work through the passage. So let's begin by doing a quick run through the entire text, all eight verses, a three-minute bird's-eye view, and then we'll come back and look at each section in turn, okay? So a three-minute bird's-eye view. Look at verse 10. 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And of course, that's not saying that Christians must agree on everything without exception. Pepsi or Coke, I mean, we're in perfect accord on that, or iOS versus Android, or even, even infant versus believer's baptism. Right? This isn't a, a denial that there are secondary and tertiary issues brothers and sisters in Christ disagree over. Context is king, and the context restricts Paul's appeal to unity in verse 10 to not divisively holding rival opinions over which church teachers to follow. Look at verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. No. The church must be unified on what the gospel is and what the gospel entails. And by dividing over church teachers, the Corinthian Christians aren't living in accordance with the gospel. They're, they're, they haven't properly seen the gospel's relevance to how they should be behaving. Such quarreling is foolish. They, they've exchanged the wisdom of the cross for delusive worldly wisdom. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And Paul, he's grateful that he's baptized so few believers in Corinth because that means fewer of them can, can divisively follow him as the one who has baptized them, right? So it's, it's actually, it's come to this. Following the guy who baptized you over against those other guys, you know, right? Good grief. Verse 14, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that they were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, lest it become useless. So, that's our, that's our passage today in a nutshell. It's not too long. I could probably preach the whole thing in 10 minutes, but no such luck. <laughs> because these verses are connected to everything that follows over the next four chapters. It all begins here. So, bear in mind, when we look in our bulletin now at problem number one and the gospel solution, it's taking in all four chapters into consideration, not just these eight verses, all right? So look at your handout. Problem number one, one of ten. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 10 through 4, 21, a huge chunk of text. Some Corinthian Christians are dividing over church teachers. They embrace the values of the Roman society, which divides over ethnicity. So Jews versus Gentiles, and social rank, wise versus foolish, powerful versus weak, noble birth versus low and despised. Roman culture values polished rhetoric and regards the message of a crucified Messiah as folly. Caught up in rivalries, the Corinthian church boasts about their own possession of wisdom and rhetorical eloquence, 
or that of their favorite leaders. A point of contention with Paul is his failure to display this status-enhancing rhetoric expected of a wise and cultured person worthy of their allegiance. So, if that's the problem that Paul's addressing, what's the gospel solution he presents? And, And I phrase it that way deliberately because the one theme that drives everything Paul writes in Corinthians is the gospel. The gospel solves every issue Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians because the gospel and its presuppositions and its consequences is decisive for every issue regarding how Christians should live. Gospel solution. Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of God and confounds Roman values. God uses church teachers to plant and water the church, but God alone gives the growth. So do not boast, in particular church teachers, because they are merely servants of Christ. Boast in the Lord. So that's the setup, folks. Uh, That's the course we're going to be sailing for the next four sermons or so. I'm taking the time to set this up because I've, I've, I've said this before. I think the background, what's going on, what's informing, like why Paul is writing this letter, what's going on with the Corinthian church, the background to all this, their beliefs and why they're kind of transmuting things and not living for the gospel, that's more difficult to determine in First and Second Corinthians, I think, than any other book in the New Testament. What's going on? What's informing their thinking? What's the culture of Corinth like? That we have to work that through very, very carefully or this text will make no sense. So we have to take the time to build that up. So let's circle around. We're going to work through the whole passage now, all right? It begins in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, so he couldn't be more serious. That all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And verse 10 is the key verse for all that follows. I'm going to preach it last. Uh, Because once we establish the context, once we understand the reason why Paul's making this appeal to unity, uh, then verse 10 makes perfect sense, and we can easily then move to our concluding application. So let's move to verse 11. Why is Paul making this appeal to church unity? It's because he's learned some grim news about what's happening back in Corinth. The church is engaged in divisive rivalry by contentiously taking positions regarding which church leader, which church teacher they follow. And that is serious stuff. It's four chapters serious. That's the sort of thing, brothers and sisters, that rips churches apart. But even so... Paul broaches the issues very gently. Look at verse 11. My brothers and sisters. Do you hear his affection? He he cares for them. Paul cares for the church in Corinth as fellow siblings in God's family. And he continues to call them brothers and sisters throughout the letter. So despite the division, despite the sin, despite their bad feeling against him, brothers and sisters... Because, again, Paul looks at the church primarily as who they are in Christ before he looks at anything else that may be true of them. 
all Christians are God's holy people. But that doesn't mean we're sinless. This is going back to last week's sermon. God's holy people gradually become what we already are. What's that? Holy, sanctified, right? And Paul goes on to teach in chapter 3 that Christians must mature like a child grows into adulthood or a seed sprouts and grows into a plant. Isn't that good news? Isn't it great that God didn't just set a clock and say, okay, you've got five months to shape up. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you or dissensions, divisive rivalry, wrangling. Those are other ways to translate that word. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And that, that kind of division, that's a work of the flesh. People with the Spirit mustn't divide over church teachers. And this is one of those things, one of those teachings that Paul unpacks later that we'll deal with down the road. But just quickly, look at chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read this text from the ESV. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Aren't you acting just like people of the world? Now, the commentators more or less agree that the first three groups that Paul lists in verse 12, each is following a church teacher who at one time personally ministered to the Corinthians. So we have the Paul faction, the Apollos faction, the Peter faction, here called Cephas, his Aramaic name, and then this fourth group, uh, the Christ faction, and they're probably the most sanctimonious of the whole bunch. They claim to follow the Messiah himself. I follow Christ. But here's a $64,000 question. Why these divisions? Why this party spirit? What are they splitting up over? They're copying their worldly culture. This dividing over teachers is straight from the pagan culture playbook. Secular Corinthians who followed a professional public teacher were loyal exclusively to that teacher. And they quarreled with those who followed other teachers, arguing that their teacher was superior. That was embedded in the culture. Now, precisely how Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ factor into all this is is difficult to determine. Uh, That Paul has... Some in Corinth who are loyal to him. That's not surprising. I mean, after all, he spent 18 months there. He planted the church. He baptized some of the first members of the church. And by his own description, as we'll see, he was the father, planter, and builder of that assembly. But two things about Paul's behavior in Corinth may have led some to oppose him, or at least to prefer Apollos or Peter to him. Apparently, Paul's unimpressive style of speaking had some in the church looking down on him. 
Just a very interesting tidbit into that. Yeah. Uh, and as we'll see in the coming weeks, Paul had self-consciously distanced himself from the rhetorical pomp of his day. Additionally, his refusal to accept financial support from the Corinthians, preferring instead to ply his trade as a tent maker, that would probably have offended some of the wealthier and more influential members of the congregation. That's because patronage, the giving of financial and other privileges to clients by leading figures in the society, that was a very important aspect, feature of Greco-Roman life. Respected teachers received such support. That's how it was done. But Paul refuses to let the Corinthians support him, even though he has the right. He goes at that hammer and tongs in chapter 9. We'll come to that. But Paul chooses not to exercise his right because he doesn't want to get in the way of the gospel's advance. He, he would endure anything to avoid that. The gospel must go forward. So he intentionally distances himself from the money-seeking orators of his day who value style over substance. And after Paul left Corinth, the man Apollos came to water the plants that Paul had sown, 1 Corinthians 3.6. And according to Acts 18, 24 and 25, Apollos had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He spoke with great fervor and he taught about Jesus accurately. And Luke describes Apollos as having spoken in Corinth boldly and vigorously, Acts 18, 26 and 28. And to some of the Corinthians, this would have formed a stark contrast to Paul. I could just imagine the response of some of the Corinthians after Apollos finished his first sermon in Corinth. It's like, oh, what's that? That's what I'm talking about. I'm of Apollos. In high school, I don't know how it was for your generation, but uh, there always seems to be people who have a, a T-shirt with an obscure punk band on it. Or, you know, they, they proudly wear their Led Zeppelin T-shirts, you know, and it's like a calling card. And, uh, but their identity is wrapped up with this band, right? So they're wearing this T-shirt with the obscure punk band. Like, look at my exalted musical tastes. You know, look at, you, you like generic K-pop groups? Psh, you know, no, I'm, I'm of the Beatles or something, right? Uh, I actually, I was at a party once, and uh, I thought this guy, I, we're at a picnic table, and I thought the guy next to me, I didn't know him, but he, I thought he said that he didn't like Led Zeppelin. And I'm a Zeppelin fanatic. And uh, so I said with withering disdain, all right, in a voice that made it clear, I thought that the gene pool of his family was mighty shallow. I, I said, you don't like Led Zeppelin, man? And he goes, I don't like Led Zeppelin. And he rips up his shirt. <laughs> this, this huge tattoo there, right? Like his identity was wrapped up with Led Zeppelin. But in Corinth... Members were divisively glomming on to their favorite teachers or the teacher who baptized them, saying, look at my superior wisdom. I'm of Paul. You're only of Apollos. I'm of Paul. As for Cephas, we can't be certain, but it's likely Peter visited Corinth after Paul's departure because Paul mentions him four times in this letter. And what about this Christ group? There's all sorts of debate about this. Uh, I could be wrong, but I, I think they're probably the most sanctimonious of the bunch. They're saying, I'm not part of the Paul faction. I'm not part of the Peter faction. I'm not part of the Apollos faction. 
Those are all K-poppers in my books. I follow Jesus. I'm just a Christian. So here's a very important point. There's no evidence that these rivalries are doctrinal in nature. Sort of comparable to Christians today who might say, I follow Calvin, I follow Luther, I follow Arminius. Uh, Nothing Paul says in this book points in that direction, that these divisions are doctrinal. Very important to understand. So I'm saying this. If you have a bee in your bonnet about how since the Reformation, we've had different denominations within Protestantism, so Baptist, Presbyterian, Brethren, this isn't the text you want to be appealing to. I'm not really sure which text you would be appealing to, but it's not this one for sure. Also, none of the persons named, very important, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, none of those men lent any support to these so-called parties or encouraged them, encouraged these factions to develop around them. The text nowhere says that. No, the Corinthians are splitting off into these factions on their own without the approbation of Paul, Cephas, or Apollos. This is just homegrown division. (laughs) So now we come to verse 13, where Paul continues his appeal from verse 10. His appeal is, be united. And he asks three rhetorical questions. And the answer to each question is an emphatic no. And I think emphasizing one English word in each of Paul's questions helped to express his incredulity. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. And then the rest of the paragraph expands on this third, expands on this third question. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And in verse 14... I can just see Paul pulling his, his face down with his, both his hands, just at a total loss, right? He's like, I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say they were baptized in my name. Yes, I, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I can't remember if I baptized anyone else. I, I love that little throwaway line. It, the Corinthian church, they attach so much importance to who was baptized by whom because That baptizer was their own personal rock star in whom they could boast, right? It was a a status symbol. That was their thinking. I got dunked by Paul. But Paul pays so little mind to this, uh, who was baptized. It slipped from his conscious remembrance. Doesn't even know. Paul took a page from Jesus' book. Jesus didn't baptize anyone during his earthly ministry. John 4, 1 reads this. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. But can you imagine if Jesus had baptized people? How many people would have been running around saying that I've been baptized by the divine Messiah? You just, you know that would happen. I mean, it's happening here in Corinth. To, To their shame, there are people today who boast that they were baptized by Martin Lloyd-Jones. So Paul avoided baptizing new converts, or at least that was his policy in Corinth. 
he left that task to his co-workers, which doesn't mean that the Apostle Paul regarded baptism as unimportant. I mean, we're following the Great Commission, right? He's a Great Commission Apostle. But in a society where loyalty to patrons was common and supremely important, Paul wanted to avoid the danger inherent in baptism that might lead people to assume that they had a special relationship with the teacher who baptized them. Missionaries don't bind people to themselves. People who come to faith in Jesus are bound to Jesus, which is why Jesus' name is invoked when people are baptized. So, Natalie, Cindy, Antoine, anybody else here I may have baptized, if God ever sees fit to grant me a ministry where I'm not laboring in total obscurity, (laughs) I forbid you to mention to a living soul that John Bell was the one who baptized you. Christians need to center their lives on the gospel, not on the various preachers in whom we can take pride. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, and both eloquence and wisdom there refer to form rather than content, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That is just made useless. And we'll be unpacking that fascinating and all-important verse in the weeks to come. Because what Paul says there in the second half of verse 17 transitions to 118 to 25. Just look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 for a moment. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. No, Paul's not demeaning baptism in verse 17. He's just emphasizing that heralding the gospel is his main calling. Jesus sent Paul to proclaim the gospel in a particular manner, without worldly rhetoric and clever, sophisticated, impressive status-boosting oratory, and for a particular purpose, to not make Christ's cross useless. Beloved, make no mistake, the effectiveness of preaching is not bound to a special style of delivery or in wisdom recognizable by the world's standards. I was talking to an ESL brother this week who was lamenting his ability to evangelize in English he said, this is a joke. He said, like, I'm, I'm so smart in Spanish, <laughs> but English is another matter. And, and I would say to all of us, even those whose mother tongue is English, don't worry. The effectiveness of preaching is not bound up with that sort of thing. To, to a special style of delivery or in wisdom recognizable by the world's standards, just, just be faithful. Preach Christ. And him crucified. 
because the appropriate response to preaching is bound up with the message of the cross and its content, not to the aesthetic form of delivery of the message or your brilliance, your eloquence, your mastery of the English language, whatever it might be. And I'll have lots and lots to say about that in the weeks to come. I mean, Paul goes at this hard. But now that we understand all of that, quickly go back to verse 10, now that we have the context. Again, this sentence expresses Paul's main argument from this point all the way to chapter 4, verse 21. Verse 10 is the key. So it's a good verse to wrap things up with before moving on into our application. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. In the Dark Ages, the 1990s, there's a TV series, Star Trek, The Next Generation, and the public was introduced through the show, to an alien race who appear as recurring antagonists called the Borg. Uh, the Borg are a collection of species that have been turned into cybernetic organisms functioning as drones of the collective or the hive. And uh, we're delving into very geeky, never had a girlfriend type territory here, but what the Borg seek is perfection. A perfection acquired through abducting individuals and assimilating them into a collective intelligence so that life and technology are wedded into a single, unified organism. Individual Borg rarely speak. Uh, instead, they send a collective audio message to their targets stating, resistance is futile. <laughs> Classic. Followed by a declaration that the target in question will be assimilated into the collective and its biological and technological distinctiveness added to their own. It's all stated very matter-of-factly, very coldly, very robotically. Um, and then these hapless victims of Borg assimilation proceed to lose any semblance of their individuality. They no longer think for themselves. All their actions are now directed by the collective as a whole. And some critics of Christianity suggest the church isn't far removed from the Borg collective. Verse 10 being a case in point. We become an assimilated people, a people in danger of losing our individuality as we adopt groupthink, right, and a herd mentality. We no longer think for ourselves. All our actions are now directed by the collective as a whole as we blindly follow the tenets of an organized religion. That's one of the dirtiest words out there now, organized religion. Uh, I've talked to several people who literally made this Borg analogy to me. Uh, but it's not true. God in his word tells us something wonderfully different, doesn't he? Think of the opening verses of Romans chapter 12. Through the apostle Paul, God tells Christians that we're a people in the midst of being transformed. Even though our bodies are getting older and wasting away with sickness and disease, in the meantime, God is in the process of renewing our minds. We're being transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit in the teaching of Holy Scripture. Through the power of God's transforming spirit, our foremost desires in life 
are being changed. They're being brought in line with the scriptures. And as a result, as a result, we're a people who no longer allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. We're being transformed, brothers and sisters, at the deepest level, becoming more like Jesus, even more conformed to his image as we take on his mind and learn more and more the moral will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is not the unthinking mentality of a collective hive. This is not an unthinking, uncritical capitulation to organized religion. This is the Holy Spirit-empowered New Covenant doctrine of sanctification. This is sanctification. That's what it looks like. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you have be perfectly united in mind and thought. That is not an app that we have to download, New City. It's part of the gospel operating system. Nacelli makes some excellent points in his commentary. The main reason church unity is so important isn't that it's expedient. Rather, it's a condition the gospel requires. But Corinthian, the Corinthian church is divisively holding rival opinions over which teacher to follow. There's factionalism within the church. There's division. They're not living out the gospel. Of course, it's only natural that the personalities of some teachers will seem more appealing or that some teachers in the church will strike us as better communicators. But if they're qualified elders, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, Titus 1, 5 to 9, if they're qualified elders and if they're faithfully serving God as he is assigned, then the church should joyfully follow all of them without quarreling over who is best. It's foolish for us to exalt one teacher over another divisively. I'm for Pastor John. I'm for Pastor Alex. As we'll see in the weeks to come, church leaders are merely God's servants. That's all. So we thank God for church teachers. Uh, they're God's gift to the church. But God is the one who makes the church grow. Therefore, we should benefit from the strengths of multiple church teachers without fixating on just one. As Nacelli puts it, healthy churches have a plurality of church teachers and church members should benefit from each of their strengths rather than polarizing into groups that prefer one over the others. And again, in the weeks to come, we're going to unpack that more and more. Now, what I want to do in the time that we have remaining is take a quick, where are we now? snapshot of the evangelical landscape a year and a half into COVID-19 and relate it to what we've learned today from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this snapshot is not a happy one, I'm afraid. I've been greatly saddened by many pastors, some of whom are my friends, men with whom I went to Bible college, or men God has entrusted with an international platform whose ministries have been 
a tremendous blessing to me. I've been shocked. I've been saddened, angered, embarrassed by what these brothers in Christ have said and written about other churches, other believers, other pastors. A lot of it has been downright sinful. I know all sorts of churches racked by internal upheavals. Pastors fired, elder power plays, membership power plays, division, factionalism, good men driven out of the ministry or on the verge, churches taking elders to civil court, families leaving churches poorly, trumpeting their political and internet teacher allegiances for all the members to hear, disparaging the reputations, wisdom, and faithfulness of their former pastors. God help us. If there were any sinful fault lines in a local church before COVID-19, it seems Satan has exploited the pandemic to turn those fault lines into chasms. I'm not going to name names or single out local churches or ministries. Uh, If you've been following this at all, then you know who the guilty parties are. If you don't, count yourself blessed. Uh, But it's still wise for you, Christian, to know what has happened and is happening out there in the wider church because this isn't over yet. We're going to be living with the effects of this for years to come. What I'm getting at is this. Led by the elders, New City Baptist Church has complied with government restrictions on corporate worship. As a local church, we have submitted to the civil authorities God has placed over us. And if you wish to better understand the theological rationale informing your elders on this decision, or our take on the overlapping jurisdiction of church and government, then go to our sermon webpage and look up the message for June 7th, 2021, or no, 2020, COVID-19 in the church. By God's grace, I believe the Lord used that lesson to nip in the bud a lot of quarreling and potential division amongst the the membership of this church, despite the wide spectrum of opinion regarding the politics and theology of this matter. However, as is well known, certain churches have defied government worship restrictions. Uh, Some did so openly, some did so in secret, and we prayed for those churches. Uh, We prayed for... This is verbatim. We prayed for humility, unity, and that the witness of the gospel would only be furthered by their actions. And we prayed for Westminster Chapel specifically. After several elders were charged for holding illegal gatherings in their buildings, uh, we prayed for good legal outcomes and church unity. That's not being inconsistent on our part to pray for those things. Alex and I can respect the decision of church elders to take the approach of civil disobedience. Uh, We understand the desire. We honor the biblical command for the church to gather together. Uh, As a church, we've been hobbling around with crutches because we have a broken ankle for the last year and a half. You know, it's been lousy. Uh, We're basically in 95% agreement with everything our brothers and sisters who are defying the lockdown are saying. Uh, And if, unlike us, 
a local assembly believes the civic leaders have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction and that to their thinking, faithfulness to Christ prohibits them from observing the restrictions the authorities want to impose on their corporate worship services, well then, that might be the right decision. Uh, Alex and I have always believed, we've said this, we believe it's a judgment call. If those elders feel bound by conscience to gather the church, then they should. Let each be convinced in his own mind. Of course, if they do, then they need to take into consideration a whole host of issues. They need to prayerfully think through how best to explain matters to their members a la Romans 13 and why not submitting to the God-ordained authorities in this case isn't sin. And what's the attendance expectation of the members in a situation like this when there's a medical pandemic but the elders have determined that public health orders may be safely ignored? They would need to be very careful not to steamroll over legitimate fears of some in their congregation of virus transmission? And what if certain members would be violating their conscience to comply with meeting? What if Romans 13 carries more weight for a member than it does his or her elders? What if the church's witness to their neighbors? What if the church's love for their neighbors? I'm not saying that these are impossible uh, issues to overcome, uh, but they certainly need to be prayerfully thought through. But something else those elders need to consider, and this gets to our sermon text today, is when they do speak of other churches, other pastors, other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who have, who have decided to abide by the safety measures implemented by the God-ordained authorities, that they do so charitably, lovingly, humbly, and in a way that promotes unity. Just as we need to be careful, New City, coming down the other street. Right? What's good for the gander is good for the goose. Provision needs to be made in any statement put out by any church, in any online Facebook post, in any church-sanctioned tweet, in any preach sermon, or in any member meeting discussion, or in any Sunday morning announcement, or during any prayer meeting, provision must be made for the possibility that a church might choose another path. In this case, the path of submitting to the God-ordained authorities and still be counted as faithful. And in many cases, in some very famous cases, both in the GTA and around the world, that is precisely what's not happening. And proportionately, it's far, far more likely to be coming from the churches who have defied the government lockdown against the churches who have complied. Uh, That's been my experience and my observation as a pastor for the last year and a half, and I've been in the trenches. Churches are phrasing their decision to defy government worship restrictions as a categorical argument. All government restrictions that impinge on worship are invalid as such. No qualifications. And so we have hashtags and sermon titles and blog posts and tweets like this. Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. Aye, aye, aye. 
right? Could it be that other Christians are trying to obey Christ by obeying Caesar? Here are some of the things being written. This stuff is all over the internet, and Christians are circling the wagons and dividing. These are all real quotes. Compliance would be disobedient to our Lord's clear commands. Pastors who cede their Christ-delegated authority in the church to a civil ruler have abdicated their responsibility before the Lord and violated the God-ordained spheres of authority. Our prayer is that every faithful congregation will stand with us in obedience to our Lord. So do you see the danger in this? Do you see the divisive spirit at work? As one pastor puts it, and I would agree, statements like these essentially read, this is the way of faithfulness, Christian faithfulness, and we're calling upon other churches to join us in obedience to Jesus Christ. Oh! One well-known megachurch asked churches everywhere to demonstrate such obedience to Christ, obedience to Christ, by affirming their anti-lockdown church statement with a signature. But the statement itself made no provision for the possibility that a Christian might choose another path and still be counted as faithful. They were not careful to say churches and elders will come to different conclusions, but we believe we are free to disobey the government and even feel compelled to do so. That would have been fine. As Jonathan Lehman points out, there's a difference between we're free to do this and you have to do this too. The first insists on a political freedom, which is their right to insist upon. The second takes away a spiritual or Christian freedom, which is not their right. New City, hear me, okay? Speaking like this, making statements like this, preaching sermons like this, or, or if a member of New City were to have another member over for dinner and they were to say these sorts of things, impugning the Christian faithfulness of the pastors of this church, that's divisive. When you say, in the midst of a health pandemic and in a government lockdown context, pastors who cede their Christ-delegated authority in the church to a civil ruler have abdicated their responsibility before the Lord and violated the God-ordained spheres of authority, you are being divisive, and God comes down hard on that. We're going to come to this text later on in our series, but listen to what Paul writes in Titus 3, 10 to 11. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. That's an excommunication text. And if you're a pastor of another church who is saying those things, then you're not leading your sheep, Christ's sheep, along a path that's going to help them think through their relationship with the wider body of Christ. Not, Not if you're saying... We are the faithful ones. I'm with megachurch pastor so-and-so. I'm with Christian apologist so-and-so. The rest are moral cowards and compromisers. God help us. We need repentance for that kind of talk. Beloved, it's a free country. 
But I would counsel you, if you're a member of this church, I would counsel you to do this. Don't support those ministries. Don't listen to them. Don't retweet them. Don't subscribe to their podcast. Don't fill your heart with that sort of divisive propaganda. Block those friends on Facebook who can't interact with brothers and sisters in Christ in a mature fashion in a way that promotes unity. Block them. As your pastor, that's what I would counsel. But what I would command from God's word is this. Don't bring this garbage into our church. Do not be influenced by these peddlers of division more than the pastors God has placed over you. New City is going this way. Do not be part of a whispering campaign, a fifth column, that hopes to steer the church that way. I'd like to close now with something a member of this church wrote to themselves to better help them think through this COVID situation. Uh, They showed this to me months after they wrote it, and I knew immediately I wanted to include it in this sermon. Uh, I would probably phrase things, a couple, couple things differently myself, but I really appreciated reading this, both as this person's pastor, but also as a fellow believer. I hope the Lord will bless this to our church, New City, and with this, we're going to close. Since March 2020, I've thought on Philippians fairly often, and I've chosen to follow Philippians 2 and how I've interacted with the church. Philippians 2.2 from the ESV version, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Because of this, I've chosen out of the three options that appear to be relevant, obeying government, meeting together, submitting to the church leadership, option three, submitting to church leadership. My decision in all matters related to church and COVID has been to submit to the leadership of my church. In this case, our church leadership has chosen to follow government guidelines. We haven't met in person when the government has said not to, And when they say that we can do so, we all wear masks and keep distant. I follow all these guidelines. I do my best to attend all services that are open for meeting and obviously don't attend when we are closed. If I were in a church that chose to meet together, regardless of government decisions, I would go meet. For me, church unity and the idea of growing in our love for one another is more important than the biblical commands to submit to governing authorities or do not neglect meeting together. I am fully aware of the arguments on all sides. This is the decision I've chosen. I also fully respect the decisions of all churches one way or another, unless, of course, the decisions of church leadership have led to division, anger, hostility, or any other sinful attitude amongst leadership. I also fully respect the decisions of individual church members in however they have chosen to conduct themselves during this strange time within the church, unless, of course, their decisions have led to division, anger, hostility, 
or any other sinful attitude between themselves and other church members or leaders. I also recognize that the vast majority of pressure lies on leaders of local churches, and this is just the view of an average local church member. And then they conclude with the rest of Philippians. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he emptied himself, taking on the humble position of a slave. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, dying a criminal's death on the cross. As a result, God exalted him and gave him the name above all other names, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we read in Psalm 133 how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Lord Jesus, good and pleasant feels like an understatement, a woefully inadequate description of what happens when you show up and begin to thaw the tensions and deconstruct the divisions and enable your people to move forward together in unity. It's miraculous, it's beautiful, and it's profound. It's clearly obvious that where uh, believers dwell in unity, you bestow your presence and blessing. It's equally obvious that where there's disunity, Satan bestows his darkness and evil, suspicion and distrust, cynicism and gossip, disintegration and separation, God, have mercy on us all. So boldly and shamelessly, we ask you for a fresh outpouring of your spirit on our churches, a downpour of humility and repentance and healing, a deluge of the, of the sane making power of your presence during this time of COVID-19. Jesus, drench us with the humbling and unifying dew of the gospel. We want to be sopping wet with it, not merely damp. Saturate us and satiate us with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We don't look to Aaron and his beard, but to you and your enthronement at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, you are our great high priest who has received the Spirit without measure so that you can pour forth the Spirit without reservation. So do so without delay, we ask, for the glory of God and the fame of your name. We pray this in your glorious and gracious name. Amen.